We're in the book of Galatians. If you are new with us, you can just kind of pick up right where we are. Uh, we're also doing a reading plan this year. Reading plan and the book of Galatians are not connected. Our reading plan is for our discipleship groups and just kind of for anybody who wants to join in on it. Uh, it's an easy way to get through the entire New Testament in 2020. Uh, chapter a day, five days a week equals all of the New Testament. That's how it works. So you will do that. Uh, so if you're starting, we're going to start with week four this coming week in Luke 16. So we've been able to hear Jesus' teaching uh, teaching us and hearing his words for us. Uh, when we do Galatians, we're reading the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit. Uh, and we finished up chapters 1 and 2 to begin the year. And we're going to be in chapter, or chapter 1. We did two sermons in chapter 1 to begin the year. We're starting chapter 2 this morning. And I want to read for us the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with how to find Galatians in your Bible, uh, it's comes kind of beginning of the New Testament after the Gospels. Uh, there are different ways to do it. I'll say mine. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's not everybody's way to remember. General Electric Power Company, uh, those four letters. So Galatians kind of comes first in that. So if you find Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians, go backwards. Uh, that's, the, that's a good way to remember. But Galatians chapter 2 reads like this. This is Paul talking about his own testimony. He's being autobiographical. He's writing about himself and what he's experienced and why his gospel is true. He says there's no other gospel in the first 10 verses of chapter 1. Uh, and then he says, listen, I didn't receive this from man. It wasn't kind of cooked up in some room of guys who got together and thought, how could we make a cool story? That was the second half of chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, 14 years has passed from his conversion, and he's beginning to talk about now this connection he has with the other apostles and how they didn't change the message that, that he received by revelation, meaning they didn't have to tinker with anything that was going on with the gospel message, right? Christ died for your sins. Christ rose from the dead. Uh, in, through faith in him, you can be changed. That's what the Judaizers, kind of our opponents in Galatians, are doing. So he's again talking about his uh, autobiography and why that lends credence, strength to his argument that what I have preached to you is what you should believe, and it hasn't changed. So he says this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus is a Greek. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, that would be the leaders, though privately before those who seemed influential, set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced, compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Greeks, the Gentiles. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that would be the Jewish uh, people. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James 
and Cephas, that'd be Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. God, we enter into this time needing, every week, <clears throat> needing to hear from you. Not our own ideas and not our own thoughts. Our minds come in uh, busied, sometimes worried, concerned, and distracted. And so we need your spirit to pierce our hearts that we might hear the words of Jesus for us this morning. And we pray it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> So, the issue that we have been dealing with in Galatians is one we're going to keep talking about week after week because we forget. <clears throat> and that issue is kind of the dividing line between uh, law and grace, right? Or I might, might think about it, like the gospel that comes in truth for us, uh, the grace of Jesus for us, and then the Judaizers on the other side of the line who go, no, you really need to add work to it. And that can be confusing because false teachers can be rather seductive in how they talk. You go, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about it before. Like we have this way of thinking, oh, only, only crazy people get duped by false teachers. But that's not the case. Right? It's attractive. Why? Because it appeals to our flesh. And people teach us improperly. We're kind of like, I, I kind of like that. I like the idea of being able to apply some effort to my salvation. I like to be able to kind of do something. It makes me feel better to have worked in some capacity for what's going on here. And so there is that line, but one line is decidedly inbounds, and the other line is decidedly out of bounds. And the Judaizers are trying to tell the Galatians, go ahead and just jump out of bounds. But they're like, it's not really out of bounds, it's really inbounds. But just Paul's lying to you. What he's telling you isn't true. He made it up. Now we do this week by week. So we don't get to hear kind of how this all connects in one fell swoop. But what he's saying is, these first two chapters is, there really is no other truth. And he's going now, illustration after illustration, explaining why that is. He's talking about his own life and his own ministry and what's gone on there. And he's talking about then uh, the apostles who would have some kind of weight in Judaism, right? The, the Christ-following Jewish apostles would have, they would carry weight. Their opinion matters to other uh, Jewish believers around. And so 14 years later, he's like, hey, we just went ahead and checked notes and all was good. That's what we're getting to today. <clears throat> Next week, we then get to hear how Paul, because of the truth of the gospel, was not even afraid to confront Peter, who was not living in step with it. And so he's going to illustration after illustration, showing how what I have said has been incredibly consistent from the beginning. And if you're going off after something else, it didn't come from God. In chapter 3, we actually get to read some of where Paul believes it came from. Because who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Who has led you astray, right? That he looks at this as, all, as, as a spiritual battle for the truth of the gospel. Not just some kind of uh, words on a page that just get tweaked some. Like, no, this is, this is life and death for him. And what we even see in the first six verses, or the first five verses, is this. <clears throat> because there's this issue with Jewish and Gentile relationships. 
And we'll see multiple times the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was what was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that God was with him and he was going to make these people into a great nation. And that from him all the nations of the world would be blessed, which comes up pretty significantly in Galatians chapter 3. So he's saying what they need to believe. He's talking about circumcision. Circumcision historically then would be incredibly important. So when you have a guy like Titus who is from a Greek background or a Gentile background, not Jewish, and you have a guy like Paul who is from an incredibly Jewish background, then he essentially is going into this meeting in Jerusalem with the apostles and Titus is the test case. I'm bringing somebody with me who is a part of my ministry who is incredibly significant. And we're going to look at him and we're going to see really quickly that there was no compelling Titus to be circumcised for his salvation on account of the message. So the dividing line, inbounds, out of bounds, what's happening is the Judaizers keep moving the line. Okay, well, this is how you need to operate, and this is how you need to operate, and this is how you need to operate, which is just the condition of the human heart. It's so hard to focus on grace. It's so hard to kind of go, God loves you. We want to go, God loves you, and you need to because of that. Because think about how long you, like, if if you've been in this room, and maybe you've had a relationship with Jesus for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. There are things, convictions that have developed over time that become so easy to impose on someone to say, well, this is what you must do. When you don't actually remember the source of maybe even the reason that you do that, it's because you know your flesh and you know your weakness, and so there's things that you don't do in order to honor the Lord. But when you then take those and you apply them to someone else, and you say, you must do the same because I do it, well, now what are you doing? You're adding to the gospel message because... Someone who is, we've talked about this maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago, someone who is young in the faith is going to have a hard time discerning the difference between maybe a conviction that you have and what they must do. And that's what starts to happen. You have the Galatians. You have this church that was formed by Paul. Uh, He was preaching. Barnabas was with him. John Mark was there for a little while, but didn't last long. So they were kind of doing their ministry, preaching the message, and now the message is being changed, and that's an incredibly tender moment at the beginning of a church to preach this message, to have other people come in who have influence, who, I know all the same people, right? Like, we have the same, we have the same contacts in our phone. I could talk to you about Peter. I could talk to you about John. I could talk to you about James. If you want to have those conversations, sure, let's call them up right now. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know you knew all these people. Okay, well, let's go. We have to consider what you have to say then. Paul has no patience for that. So the whole time we're thinking about Galatians, we're thinking about how the Judaizers are trying to make you look like you're inbounds when really you're out of bounds. Because they have redrawn the lines of what saves. In this passage, we're going to see really two things. We're going to see opponents and friends. Opponents of the gospel and friends of the gospel, and both are doing something to bolster Paul's argument that there's no other gospel. We actually start with the opponents. And we're going to see this. The opponents of the gospel, they steal freedom. That's their job. If they oppose Jesus, they're trying to steal freedom and imprison you to a way of thinking that has no joy and has no hope and has no life. 
And Paul's going to use his illustration of going to Jerusalem to explain what, what's happening here. Now before we get there, there's different times when when does Paul mean the 14 years. So I'm just going to try and simplify it here. I think that Paul's talking about from his conversion. Last week he said three years from my conversion because there's that significant moment. And now he's going 14 years from my conversion. I did this. It's a lot of time to have passed, isn't it? We're reading the book of Acts. You don't really think 14 years passes between chapter 9 and chapter 11. But lots of time passes even in two chapters. So I want to give you a passage that I think is how he got to Jerusalem for this meeting. Lines up with the chronology that some people might think it's Acts 15. I really don't think it's Acts 15 because Paul makes no, no reference of Acts 15 and its conclusion in the book of Galatians. I think Acts 15, where they're having this serious circumcision issue with everybody in a public meeting, and the meeting we have here is a private meeting. So this big public meeting in Acts 15, I don't think it's the same one. I think it's Acts chapter 11. So in Acts chapter 11, Paul and people are up in Antioch, and we see this. In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. Now we're talking, remember, we're talking about elevation, not direction. So they're coming down from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's at a higher elevation, to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took, days in the, uh, took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples there in Antioch determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this, I think, is the, is the situation that got Paul to Jerusalem for what we're reading now in Galatians chapter 2. Right, so he's there to give relief to the churches, and while he's there, he's meeting with these disciples. Now, time has gone on. He's, he's, he's interacted with them before in Acts chapter 9, but it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. Remember, he's fleeing north because people want to kill him. Uh, so Paul is now coming back, <clears throat> and I believe it's to bring relief. And while he's there bringing relief, they have this meeting about the gospel. And this trip is dealing with both the content and application of the gospel. He's arguing, in a sense, with the Galatians. Right? It's always this kind of thing you have to do to go, why is Paul talking about it now? And in what way is he talking about it? Remember, the Galatians are being told you've got to follow the law to be saved. He's like, well, let me give you a law illustration and how salvation we're talking about is through Christ alone. There's no work attached to it other than the work of Jesus. So 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, Taking Titus with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them privately the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So he goes up. Revelation. What did Agabus do? Agabus said, there's going to be a famine. So, right? Revelation, moving them toward uh, the uh, city of Jerusalem to bring relief. So now, I, I, like, it may not be Agabus' moment, but you do see in Acts chapter 11... The Lord using Agabus to motivate them to send relief to Jerusalem. So I went up, and I wanted to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Which is interesting, because in chapter 1, isn't his big deal, no one gave this to me. No one told me to do this. No one said, go preach it this way, have this message, whatever else. So now, why is he concerned about not running in vain? He already knows he's not running in vain. He knows the message that he has. He's confident in it. He didn't consult with anyone, chapter 1 tells us. So now he's consulting with people? 
Now remember, he's using chapter 2 as a reason to say, my gospel didn't come from anyone, but not only that, but wait, there's more, right? But wait, there's more. When I synced up my notes with the Jerusalem apostles, they were the same. And I didn't get it from them. So here's my message that I have been preaching. Here's the message that they have been preaching. I'm laying it out, and there's no difference. There's no difference. He's using this not to say I needed their approval. He's using this to show them, the Galatians, these are the same message. Or when you compare notes in an event, and you're like, oh my gosh, you have the same notes I do. It doesn't happen a lot either. Eyewitness account is a little sketch, but this is the same. So he goes to have this conversation, and he brings Titus, and he says this in verse 3, because he goes to this little kind of uh, parenthetical comment. Even Titus went with me. He wasn't compelled or forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Why does that matter? Because the argument was, we see that argument in Acts chapter 15, you must be circumcised to be saved. To be saved. Adding a work. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And then we see the sneaky false teachers coming into the meeting to listen. Not like you can lock the door. And so people are in and out. Just like when we gather, this would be, we'd say this is a public meeting, but we know generally who's here, but people can kind of come in and out, sit in the back, you know, back against the wall, listen to what's being said. And so here's what starts to happen as people come in to try and observe what Paul is saying. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, hey, can I get in there? Can I get in there? Can I get in there? Let me hear what's saying. Who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery. False brothers come in, the opponents of the gospel come in, and they want to sneak out or sniff out, figure out their freedom so that they can remove it. So they can go, uh, hey, just hey, you know, comment in the back. Yeah, you in the back. Uh, we, we don't think that, that this is how this is supposed to go. We think the law is what they need to abide by. And imagine, just for, I mean, I mean, the church is still new. Even though time has passed. It's still new. And it's so fragile. It is so fragile. Genesis, even us, we're eight-ish years old, a little over eight years old, officially. That's still really fragile. As things continue to form, and relationships get developed, and ministries start, right? Like, that's an incredibly fragile time, because anybody knows if you kind of start a ministry, or start a structure, or start a thing, or start an idea, then ten years from now, you look at it, and you're like, what in the world is that? That's where all the sacred cows come from. And then you have to have like, a, you know, you got to slaughter sacred cows forever because you're like, I don't even know why we do that anymore. It's like, well, back in the day, somebody thought it was cool to have a nickel throwing contest. And now every Thursday we throw nickels. And we don't even know why. And so these people come in to listen to what's going on and they don't like what they're hearing. And in that fragile moment, isn't there a temptation to go, well, but look, Look at what he says. And we know his grandparents. And we know his parents. And 
he doesn't agree with us. Those fragile moments become significant. And what Paul is saying is these people snuck in, and he has no problem saying false brothers who came in to sneak at, like, snuck in to spy on our freedom that they might put us in slavery. What's the application that you can make from that other than this? Adding to the gospel enslaves you. It enslaves you. You can live the rest of your life with just kind of one thing added to the message of Christ died for your sins. Or that he's, you can have life in him. And once you add one thing, parent like this. Give this percentage all the time. Read these books. Only listen to these podcasts. Once you start to add to it, what begins to happen? You feel the weight, right? It just starts to crush you, little by little. You don't even know any longer while you're doing it, why you're doing it. So they have these little ads. Do this. Then it feels really good. Because, right, you go, oh yeah, I've been circumcised. I'm in. I'm in if you can be circumcised. I'm in if you can't. I'm in, I, I'm in regardless. But what did you just do but move the boundary? So they tried to put them in slavery. There are times in the life of a church, maybe you preach on a topic that could be controversial or sensitive or touchy or whatever else, and then what happens? People find their way into your gatherings because they want to hear what you have to say. But they don't want to hear what you have to say to learn. They want to hear what you have to say to argue to disagree, to post on Facebook what you said and why you said it and why no one else ever needs to go to that church ever again because they don't look like this or talk like this or like these things, whatever it might be. And they start to, to move that along. But look what Paul says. To them, verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Not even for a moment did we waver. If the gathering is in Acts chapter 11 that he's talking about here in Galatians chapter 2, and Paul's missionary service begins in Acts chapter 13, as we read, which is when the Galatian churches would be planted, now think of the significance of Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. Had we yielded in that moment, we would have preached that gospel to you. Had we given in to what they were saying, when we showed up in Galatia and we preached, we would have had shades of what we talked about in that meeting. But we didn't yield even for a moment so that what you heard when we came and we preached was pure. It is hard Everyone in this room, if you, are a, uh, if you are in elementary school or middle school or high school or you've been walking with the Lord forever, it is hard not to yield. When other people are saying, really? You believe that? You think that's true? You're crazy to think that's true. The... Spirit of Christ in us is the only thing in those moments that will prevent us from yielding. 
and, and I say this not because I hope this is the case, the Spirit of Christ in us will move us back toward Jesus when we yield. In a moment where we go, I compromised and I shouldn't have. I was confusing and I shouldn't have been. I added to and I shouldn't and I harmed people. Still the Spirit of Christ. But, I would say to everyone in this room, <clears throat> resist the opponents to freedom. Those who say things like this, I'm glad you're saved, but. Once you add a but in there and it's not but God, right? Like if that's not the one you say after the word but, game over. Just plug your ears like dumb and dumber. Nah, 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 right? Just don't even listen to anything that person has to say anymore. I'm so glad you're following Jesus, but have you heard about? I'm so happy for you, but have you considered? Because once those start to show up and something comes in after Jesus, there's trouble. Down in River City, with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. Four people know what I'm talking about. <sighs> I'm not going to add a law of certain musicals you need to see, but I could. And you should all resist me for it. And I just have to stop for a moment, because I know there are some of us here who just go, I would never believe that. I would never think that. I would never do that. I would never say that. Not true. It's not true. I mean, even think about parenting for a second. It just comes about if you then, right? And what do our kids hear? If mom wants to love me more, or if I want to experience mom's love, then I need to. I need to do this. I need to not do that. If I don't want dad to yell at me, I need to be sure that I operate this way. So anyone who thinks that they're above adding to what exists for us, just look at your own life and how you add to so many other things. How we add to so many other things in order to keep a relationship with somebody going. So we can fall into the same error. Our hearts can wander. That's why gathering is so important. That's why reading and tethering ourselves to the scriptures is so important. That's why meeting together with other brothers and sisters, your community group or your discipleship group or wherever you might be and talking about what you see is so important because then you can hear something and go, wait a second. Be careful and you go, oh man, thanks so much. I didn't even think about the implication of saying that or doing that or talking like that. Or, right? You have these places to work out the stuff that could catch you later. And that's why if you just kind of swoop in and out of church life, it wouldn't be surprising if you catch on to some other wind or wave and start to want to go in that direction. Because it's easy. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's not easy. To start to add to or to adjust or to think differently because our hearts are, and I love the line, it comes out, prone to wander. 
prone to wander and find new things. And right, we're like, oh, look at this one. I didn't even know this was here. And you're like, don't look at that. You're actually picking up like petrified fertilizer. But you, you don't know that, but you just think it's cool. No, it's not cool. And I remember one time I, in college, I had uh, gotten into a book and really liked the ideas of the book. I thought it was pretty cool. And I shared it with a mentor of mine, pastor and friend still. I said, man, you need to read this. really cool. So what does he do? <clears throat> he reads it. And then he comes to me and he's like, Hans, there's something fundamentally wrong with your book. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? I thought it was great. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me, and he just, it wasn't, he wasn't angry with me or anything like that. I kind of latched onto an idea that I thought was cool. I shared it. And he goes, let me explain to you my concern with what you're saying. And I thought, And what's funny, and that's why we need to have mentors and people in our lives who care about us, is because multiply that kind of down the, through the years, and the author of that book is like way over here now, like out to lunch. But was caught like 17 years early for my soul's sake by somebody who I was in community with, sharing an idea with, who said, that doesn't work. That's not how that goes. And I remember the phrase, fundamentally wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong with what you're reading. I'm like, oh, really? I thought it was kind of neat. And it was neat. But neat doesn't save. <laughs> Neat's just neat. Then all of a sudden you step back and you're like, oh my gosh, that's garbage. I didn't even know I was looking at garbage. So opponents are on one side and they steal your freedom. And they can be provocative. They can write really well. They can preach really well. They can talk really eloquently. They can be all those things but they will steal your freedom. Now we look at the other side, verses 6 through 10, and we see the friends of the gospel bring fellowship. That's what happens in the last part of the verse. Fellowship that comes from people who believe the gospel together. Verses 6 through 10. And from those who seemed in, to be influential... Open parentheses. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Okay, continuing. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Nothing to his message. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his ministry, also worked through me to the Gentiles. And when James... And Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship. They became team gospel, whatever you want to call it. That we should go to the Gentiles to the and them to the circumcised. And in verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And so I love what goes on here, too, uh, and, and for two reasons, really. One is, he talks about how I went to these pillars because they seem to be influential. Then he says, and I don't even care at all that they are. They seem to be influential, but who they are really doesn't matter to me because God doesn't care. Since God doesn't care, I don't really care. But just so you know, the really important people, just a silly argument, the really important people who you might think are really important also verified what I had to say, which you seem to care about. So there you go. Peter, James, John, these guys were in it. Different James. Right? Uh, but these guys who were pillars of the Jerusalem church 
heard my message, changed nothing. Since you seem to be really concerned, Galatians, about where this message is coming from, I just thought you should know that it wasn't changed by the pillars. So that's what he's arguing right here. But not only that, we're in fellowship together. So if somebody says that we don't agree, you can go ahead and have them call up Peter, James, or John, and have that conversation because we're in it together. This also, and I just want to pause as we look at uh, verse 6, because we have a certain love for, especially in North America, celebrity Christians. We have a certain love for celebrity Christians and celebrity pastors as if they have some capacity to say more or be more or do more. And it's almost like anybody who has been in youth ministry for some time knows this. Your youth comes here on a Wednesday night and Nick shares something with them or Matt shares something with them. They hear something that goes on. They run home and they tell you what they heard. And you said, I've been telling you this forever. And they go, no, you haven't. And you're like, no, really, I have. Okay, I mean, don't forget it. I'm just so glad you're, just, it's wonderful. So there's this thing in our hearts that loves to gravitate toward people who seem to have some kind of masterful authority. Did you see who retweeted my tweet? Did you see who started following me? Did you see who liked this? Did you see, or like, all of a sudden, like a clicking of a button on a phone has some kind of miraculous power to make you more godly. And it doesn't. And yet we know that and we laugh and we still hope that we are going to be noticed by somebody of influence. And what do we really need? We need Paul's perspective, which James highlights. When we get to James after Easter. James highlights and says, there should be no favoritism among you. You shouldn't like this person because they dress better or they talk better or they have a book contract or they do this or they do that. You shouldn't let that be a part of what goes on in your churches. So Paul says, I went to the influential people. Not that I cared to, but I did. And FYI, they changed nothing. They changed nothing. I could have gone to, you know, Tom and Susie and Jonathan. Could have gone to them and they could have signed off on it. You wouldn't have cared for whatever reason because you think this is important, but the message is the message. It's not going to be changed by men or by women or by books or by podcasts. You cannot change it. So, this message of the gospel in the first portion of this chapter is bringing enemies out. And the minister says, no. And then on the other side, the same message is drawing out friends. And now they want to work together and be together. And they say, just like you're going to the Gentiles, we're going to go to the Jews. Just like you're going to uncircumcised, we're going to go to circumcised. Just like you're operating like this, we operate like that, and we are together. Which gets extra funny next week, when then Paul's like, and then I confronted Peter to his face. Because whatever agreement they had there changed. <laughs> Why? The reason, and we'll get to it, I'll just say it now, and you'll hear it again next week when you've forgotten that we've said it. The reason is because Peter wasn't in keeping with what they had already extended fellowship to one another over. He had moved. 
And so later, when Peter comes to check out what's going on in Antioch, and he has moved from what is true, Paul's like, hey, we've talked about this. You can't change it. Not in word or deed. You cannot change it. And so we don't want to, as a church, as believers, divide unnecessarily. That's one of the hardest things for us sometimes. Because we have our beliefs, and we have our core beliefs, which I would kind of encapsulate as the uh, Apostles, the Nicene Creed, the things that you must believe. And then everybody also kind of builds off of that. How their you know, view of salvation might work, and how their view of the Spirit might work, and how their view of uh, gifts within the church works, and how, like, like in their view of ecclesiology, and how churches function, and how the structures. Like, so we have what's at the core, and then we kind of go out from there, and we build off of that core some of the things that help us to function. That's why churches look different, and that's why they have different strategies, and they preach a little differently, and they express themselves differently, and that's all fine. But what happens sometimes as we build out like this, we then say, this is all what you must be right here. And there's really no room for fellowship if you don't sign off on every single tiny little letter that also exists. So you send them your 700-page doctrinal statement, and you're like, hey, can we be friends because this is all of it. And yet the issues that they were dealing with in Galatians chapter 2 were the significant issues. Because it was dealing with what is the message that saves and how does that express itself in the life of the church. That doesn't mean that we'll always be able all the time to just partner with every church in the world. There are lots. But to recognize that we need to be cheering on brothers and sisters who are going after things for the sake of Jesus and not adding to that. We don't need to unnecessarily divide up amongst ourselves because there's a whole world that needs Jesus. They all need Jesus. And we want to celebrate that. And so these apostles are like, great, you roll to the Gentiles. Go after it. It's the same message. We're going to keep doing the ministry that we have in Jerusalem and we're going to keep going to the circumcised because they need to hear this message too. And they go, Great. Great. And how they interact, and when they interact, doesn't mean they're like they're always just emailing each other, but they live in fellowship together to the point that next week, Paul's going to confront Peter over it. You can't change the message. And then there's this spot right there at the end. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Like, this isn't an ad, this isn't an ad to the gospel. This is an imperative from the gospel. It's not like, well, preach this and also do this, and then you're saved. They go, we totally agree with your message. We're with you in spirit. But don't forget the way of Jesus, that his ministry always extended to those who didn't think that they deserved it, who didn't think that they were good enough for it, who didn't think that they could afford it, who didn't have the status, who don't have the look, they can't stay with it. Remember that. Now, if this is the Acts 11 visit, then what they're essentially doing is keep doing this. Because why do you go? But to bring relief to the Jerusalem church because they knew that they had no food, they needed money, they needed to be able to provide. And so what, if that's the case, what is he doing? But also just modeling. And they're saying to him, keep doing that. 
don't forget the need to meet the needs of the poor. And this is a hard one for us because most of us, if not all of us, don't know much other than excess. Our bank accounts show it, our houses show it, our cars show it, our belts show it. All we know is excess. We don't know want. We know plenty. And yet when we talk about the poor, we go, oh, he's talking about me. Probably not, honestly. He's probably not talking about many of us at all. Because we could afford meals for a while. We could eat for some time. We're not on the verge of getting kicked out. Remember those who have nothing. Remember those who the world has forgotten. Remember those who have significant need. And what does he say? I'm eager to do that. I'm eager to do that. That eagerness is something I think could apply more greatly to all of us, myself included. I'm eager to care about these folks. By God's grace and God's grace alone, we were able to, in most boxes of, uh, boxes is not the way I should put it, but uh, in most of the areas where we are supporting uh, both local and global missions, we increased our support from 2019 to 2020, which is just awesome because that comes on the heels of your generosity, not, not anything else. We go, okay, let's, let's raise them in a sense. We're going to raise the support in these areas. And much of the support does in ways care for the poor. When uh, we send a team to Pakistan and they're working amongst the brick kiln community and like they're caring in that way, they are ministering amongst the poor. Uh, we'll be praying at the end of our service for one who is going out to care for uh, orphans and widows in their distress amongst the poor in other countries to care deeply about them. We want to support that. Uh, the crisis pregnancy work that we just support financially is a way to care for those who in those moments have nothing. And uh, that's not to say, look at us, we are awesome at this because anybody who touts themselves in their ability to live like Jesus probably missing something. Uh, and recognizing the gap that they have. It's not to say that Genesis is the model. Uh, it's to say that we recognize in verse 10 this imperative to care for those who have nothing. To be concerned about them because that's what Jesus did for us. He found us in our poverty spiritually and made us rich in him. And so the apostles say, don't forget this. Paul essentially goes, I would never. I would never. Because of what Jesus has done for me. But not only that, you know, we have uh, somebody at our church is on the board and a uh, former elder even rolled out to go uh, start a Christian school in a spot of town that needed a Christian representative. Needed a light for Christ and to tell kids that they have hope does that and to serve and so uh, others of you give that your prayer support you likely give it your financial support you are concerned about Jesus being known those are beautiful ways to represent and reflect Jesus and I want to say that organizationally we should all be concerned about those who have little it should be I mean I'd love, I'd love to hear the story one day where you're like oh yeah I have these people in my house because um, I was talking to a friend recently and uh, I said, how are things? He goes, oh, things are pretty good. And we don't talk incredibly often. Uh, so things are pretty good. I said, yeah, that's great, man. Things are... 
And then he remembered something. He's like, oh, yeah, man, we almost had to, uh, not almost had to. He's like, uh, we almost took in a refugee forever. Uh, not forever, but um, like, you know, there was this ministry and this person needed a place to stay with her child. And we were ready to take that on. She and her child had stayed with us some, uh, had nothing. It's like, you just kind of added that to, oh, things have been fine. Nothing's really new. And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, we've been ministering to this refugee, uh, this mom and her daughter for some time, and we were ready to have them move in, but they ended up moving to another state. I'm like, that's not, that's not nothing new. But then in a sense, isn't it nothing new? At the same time? It's nothing new. Because that's what we do. That's what we should do. And it's hard in the flesh to care for those who have need in the flesh. It's hard to open up your home to those who need a home and a safe place to engage and talk and consider the things of Jesus. It's hard to uh, sacrifice, and I'll only talk about the flesh, to give up your own financial freedom and abilities to support something else. Those exchanges feel like you're losing, but are you losing? No. You're not losing. Do you think the churches in Antioch had any concern supporting the work of the ministry in Jerusalem because there was a famine? Probably not. Now, send them, give us the receipts, Paul. We want to be sure they spent it on all the right things. Like, none of that. Because that's the family business. And as those in the family business, that's what we want to be about. So the gospel message creates... Opponents, it exposes opponents, and it brings together friends. People you might never thought would be in the same room together because of the work of Jesus. And I want to pray that will become more and more true for us.